Welcome to Mama Maria's podcast. Why is it named Mama Maria's? Because we are both mamas and we are both named Maria. We also each have a beautiful teenage daughter who has special needs. We want to share our stories, experiences, and successes with all of you to hopefully provide you with encouragement and hope, as well as to let you know you are not alone. Let us begin by saying that we are not lawyers, healthcare providers, licensed counselors, or teachers, but we do understand the various aspects of being a parent to a child with special needs and hope that our background will offer you knowledge and support. Our podcast is supported by the Association for Special Children and Families, which is a not-for-profit family support organization of professionals and parents who have children with any type of disability. You can learn more about them by visiting their website at ASCFamily.org. We encourage you to email us with comments or suggestions for additional podcasts at Mama Maria's podcast at ASCFamily.org. Hi, Maria. How are you tonight? Hi, Maria. I'm doing well. I'm so excited about our guest tonight. You uh, made the discovery of, of Heather's book, so you go ahead and introduce her. Okay. All right. Well, I read uh, Heather Lanier's book, uh, Raising a Rare Girl, last summer, and it really transformed the way that I thought about my own experience and my own daughter. And there were parts of it that just were um, so beautifully written and resonated with me. And then um, her, she also has a, has a TED Talk um, that I that I watched and and just wonderful. But first, I want to hear from Heather. So um, Heather, if if you could tell us about your personal story um, and your personal journey with with your child with special needs, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Marias. This is so fun. I'm so excited about being among two different, <laughs> two Marias, you know, because uh, there are no Marias in my house. So, you know, we need more of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, see my daughter who has disabilities is Fiona and she's 10 now, which I guess every parent says this, you know, but like, I can't believe it. Where did the time go? Um, although in some ways, I think when you parent a kid, who takes longer with milestones or has lots of questions about what, like what their development will be. Um, time moves, sl- it moves slower yeah. too on a day-to-day basis, you know? Um, so it's not quite the same as the typical parent who's like, wow, that is fled by. Um, like, I feel like I lived many, many years in those 10 years. Um, so Fiona was my first child. And um, as I write about in the memoir, Raising a Rare Girl, I start that story with the pregnancy that I had, because like many women of my generation, I attempted to have like a perfect pregnancy. It was my first one. So it was like, I read the books and I followed the week by weeks and I knew the vegetable size of, you know, the being that was in my womb, like, right? You know, she's a pea now, or I didn't know her. I didn't know Fiona's gender because we didn't want to genderize her. Like I did all these things to, um, I like to try to sort of make sure that she was as healthy and strong as she could be and as sort of clean slate as she could be. Um, and yeah, I really, and then I also like even did like hypnosis training for a, a, an unmedicated birth, which seemed like everyone was around me was like uh, selling that as like the gold standard for labor. And now, now that I've done it twice, I'm just, <laughs> I applaud anyone who can get through the, the other side of labor. 
Like, did you make it on the other side? Yeah, you're you awesome. are our hero. You're a you're a superhero. Like some a, you, a human being came from your own human being. Um, but anyway, at the time, you know, I was a new I was a newbie first mom. So I started the book with all of that kind of um retrospective invest like looking at my own kind of perfectionism in pain and pregnancy. Uh, and then when Fiona was born, she was, she was really small and I had my glasses off during labor. Cause that's what happens during labor. Yeah. You know, you like lose all kinds of things, including, including the thing that lets you be able to see. Um, so I, um, they, you know, they, the midwife, um, had her, had her in, in her hands and said, Oh, what a whittle peanut, what a whittle peanut. Um, and I just thought like, that's the thing you say about babies. They're very tiny. Uh, and then, but it was clear to me that she thought my baby was a little extra small. Um, and I didn't really think much of it. And, and then they, and then there was this like immediate, uh, instruction to my husband to cut the cord, um, and to not let it pulse for however long those natural birthing people told me it should it should remain intact and pulsing. So um, so and so there was a sense that there was some they were people were worried, yes. like the midwife was worried. And um, they whisked her away for a few minutes, and eventually I got her back in my arms, and she was a mysterious sort of post-birth alien baby, like babies are to me, you know, like she was uh she was just a, a little, little human in my arms, but it, everyone who came into that room, it, it became clear to me that people were real concerned about her size. So, um, they weighed her and she was four pounds, 12 ounces, which is for a full-term baby. Like it's very unusual to get a, a baby to be under, under five pounds. Um, and that began the like total 180, where I thought I was like heading in the direction of like making what I call a superhuman, like a super baby, into the 180 became like, what what happened? What what's what what's wrong? Is there something wrong? Or is what's wrong the people around me who are pathologizing the size of my child? Um, and actually that was like an ongoing question, I think, for the next several months was something wrong or was, or were they wrong for, for considering her a problem? Because there was a lot of stress, uh, on my husband and me, mostly me. Cause I'm the mom, you know, when I wanted to breastfeed on making her a regular size, getting her onto that growth chart. Like I saw, they whipped out the growth chart and marked where she was. And she was in like the bowels of the chart, like nowhere on the curve. Um, and there was a lot of pressure to like, get your child, get my child growing, get her growing. Um, so, you know, we did that and we cocooned in the post postpartum phase. And I tried, uh, worked real hard to get her to nurse. And it was like a tw- once, like 12 times wow. a day, I was trying to nurse her and she did, she was growing, but at three months she was still seven, seven pounds. So she was like the size of a typical baby at three months. And, um, the pediatrician we had seen was like this really, he was, he was a family doctor. He was this like real chill guy who, uh, I say in the book, like it looked like he was going to go hiking right after off, like right after his hours. Like he was just like wearing like mountain man gear. Um, and he was like, ah, oh, you're fine. Just love your baby. She's perfect. Look at her. And I, and at the time I thought, yeah, that's the truth. Like that's true. My baby is perfect. My baby is a human being. And you know, She's, she's, um, she's a, a gift, a gift from the great source of all things. Yeah. Um, and, 
he was true. He was right. But also I was like, but there's something not fully, there's also something missing here. Like there's a piece of information we're missing. Um, so we, we did switch to another pediatrician who was very investigative and, um, and she noticed that Fiona had some anomalies. And so long story short, um, we got a genetic, uh, study of her chromosomes and she is missing, um, the short, uh, a bit of a bit of genetic material on the short arm of her fourth chromosome, which is called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome or 4P deletion. Um, and what that meant, uh, you know, when I did the thing that I imagine every that everyone does whenever they get a diagnosis, even if you're a parent or, or an adult getting a diagnosis. Um, yeah, <laughs> I googled right. <laughs> I mean, I still remember the Mumford and Son album that I was listening to when I did that Google. And I couldn't listen to that Mumford and Son's music album for like a year after that, because I just associated it with all of the uh, worries and concerns and potential things. So w- what what I can tell you about Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome is that um, kids with people, adults too, with this syndrome tend to be really small. Um, genetically, that's how they're made. They tend to have intellectual disabilities of some kind, ranging from moderate to more profound as, as the medical people measure it, you know, um, some half of them or so are, um, ambulatory by feet. The other half might be in a wheelchair. Half of them, um, I think about half eat by mouth. Um, the other half would eat through a G tube, um, Many of them do, do uh, a minority, but a significant minority do have verbal speech. Uh, others can learn, you know, learn to communicate through devices if they're given access to that. Um, and they have like, you know, there's medical complications that come with, with the syndrome. So we, you have to, seizures are a big stressor. Kidney function is something to monitor. Um, those are the two big concerns. Um, so Yeah. Woo. So then I was, you know, welcomed into parenting, yes. like a totally different realm of parenting than anyone around me. Then I, you know, then I had expected at all. Cause of course I was making some kind of like, uh, I don't know, you know, like superhero, strong, strong spinach eating <laughs> Hulk baby in my brain. <laughs> in my mind, that was what I was doing. Um, and yeah, the, so I write about it in, this, in the book a lot. The experience was really humbling. It, it knocked me on my tail, I will say, without cursing, you know, like that's the non-cursing word. Family podcast. We know what you mean now. We know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's frustrating when you listen to a podcast and then they start just cursing and you're like, man, I got to yeah, turn it off. Yeah. My kids are around. So I'll, I'll try, you know, I got four-year-olds here, so I'll try not to curse. But, um, yeah, I ripped out the rug out from under me. And then I, you know, then I, it rewrote me. It rewrote so many of my beliefs. It rewrote, um, a lot of the way I see the world. Um, uh, now Fiona's 10 and, um, I don't know where to start with her. She's her own person. You know, she, uh, it's hard to know how to talk about her now that she's older. Cause I feel like yeah. She's her own person, you know, and she's out in school. But I, I, so I stopped writing the book at age five because that's the point at which she goes to kindergarten. And I felt like now you're entering public life in a way that if I write something about you, your teachers could read it. Your classmates are starting to be literate and could read it. And, you know, so I, I don't really talk too much about her, but I can tell you she's doing quite well. And, um, she loves, uh, uh, purses. She went from loving hats to purses and she's fully verbal 
which is, yeah, she loves accessories. Um, yeah, she's a, she's her own person with her own interests and, um, her own personality. She brings lots of life and delight and challenge too, for us, you know, cause she does have, uh, she does have d- developmental disabilities that she'll have. So, so that's sort of the, I don't know. That's, yeah, a, version well, that's, of the story. that's a beautiful story. And the way you just, I love the way you describe her and say she's her own person. And, you know, even that, that, that respect you have for her now, um, you know, that, that, that she sort of is who she is. And, you know, I, I can tell you what she likes, um, but not speaking of her in a way that's, I don't know what the word is. I don't know if it's like negative or, or just sort of um, like, like she's missing something. I think that was so early on what I realized butting up, like once we had a diagnosis, actually, even before the language around her was or in term, at least in like the medical world and sometimes even in the therapeutic world was often not always we did encounter some great doctors and therapists, but it was often language of brokenness and like needing to fix and repair. Um, and that I, it was just felt so counterintuitive to it was wrong. I just knew in my bones, it was wrong. Like that she wasn't broken and in need of a repair. Um, and that we were just like applying like post-industrial, uh, terminology to human beings. You know, we're not, we're not items on factory lines. We don't, none of us have defects, you know, uh, she's not missing anything. Um, she is fully human. So yeah, it was like a record of a weird discord that I had from the start that I had to constantly even kind of look at around and be like, am I, is it me? Am I the one who's sort of misinterpreting this? Cause all these doctors sometimes will make these kinds of comments or these therapists will imply that we need to fix her. Um, so reading people reading like the writings of disabled writers was really helpful because they, you know, would, um, also kind of validate this uh, understanding that I had that the medical profession sometimes did this to human beings who were disabled. Just made me think of something. Uh, so I, I just, I know there, so. our, our listeners can't, can't yeah. see this, but I'm just going to show you, you lovely ladies. Here are my books, <laughs> my medical books. Uh-huh. They're binders. Of all the yeah. reports. They're binders. So when you were describing those reports, I the first thing I thought was maybe I should get rid of these and just sort of say, and I've been holding on to them for many years. And um for for our listeners, I'm I'm talking about those um medical reports and the and the therapy reports mm. over the years um that I've had for my own daughter. And um as as you were saying that, I thought to myself, well, maybe I should get rid of my reports because it no longer defines her, you know, uh, or it it no longer serves me. And I I just you know I don't know. I just thought about that. Just just yeah. Just for for the listeners, you were holding what like a three inch uh, binder? Was it a four inch binder? This is a there. five inch binder. That's a good one. Yeah. Five inch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think but like that probably saved you sometimes and saved your family sometimes because you're like, oh, no, you know, like because you had the report that they didn't have because transferring records is like, I don't know, is like solving, making a rocket. It seems apparently (laughs) no one can get a transferred Mm -hmm. file like that. That is essential work sometimes is having the big binder. But it's all 
it's also essential work to like hold it lightly. I, I had a, 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 per, a the former like a leader in the four P minus support group once said, "Sometimes you got to keep the diagnosis mm, in yeah. your back pocket." And I love that advice because it was like you're a human first, and then you have all you also have this diagnosis. And sometimes the diagnosis is forefront in our minds when we think about health or something that we need to be concerned or considering. Um, and other times the diagnosis, you got to keep it in your back pocket, which means you think, Hey, if this were a typical kid, what would we do? Um, why would we do it any differently because of a diagnosis? So yeah, you keep the, you can't keep a five inch binder in your back pocket, but you can put it on your top shelf out of, the, out of sight. You know, it's there if you need it. You know, when, when my daughter was born, yeah. um, I have a, she's almost 16. Um, I have a daughter who is a delight. I have two daughters, but my, my uh, nearly 16 year old has cerebral palsy. So when she was about, I, I guess just a few months old, I took her to, um, you know, we knew something was medically wrong and I took her to her neurologist mm-hmm. at just a few months old, maybe just a month. And I had a notebook out of five subject notebook because I'm a medical writer and I'm very organized yeah. to a fault, <laughs> a little type a, and I had it organized by questions, diagnosis information, testing, you know, all that kind of thing. And I sat there with the physician and I spoke to her in her language. So she was really excited to be able to speak to me in her language. And a couple of weeks later, I called and I asked to speak with her and she said, oh, you're the mom with the notebook. (laughs) All these years, she's still my daughter's doctor. I love her. We have great respect for one another. She allows me to participate in medication decisions and testing decisions, but she still knows me as the mom with the notebook. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was just going to say, it's nice though, because I have it in a like Maria, you have yours on the shelf. I have mine in my uh, closet in a in a filing cabinet, and I don't remember the last time I looked at it because now this isn't new mm. anymore. You know, it's this is easy yeah. now in a sense because we've been doing it for almost sixteen years, and it, it's almost like it's not a big deal anymore. This is life. It's it's you don't even yeah, consider yeah. it to be different because this is just life. And I yeah. think the sooner we can do that the better we can all just live our lives and be happy and just quote unquote, yeah. have a, have like a normal life. And I say that because isn't yeah, that yeah. what we all want anyway? So why not just do it? Yeah. Well, I was just yeah. going to say that, that every once in a while I'll, I'll open it and I don't know why I, I will open it, but, it, but it, but it will bring, make me sad. And, um, and it's so interesting how those mm. words and that language and, and what people are saying and, and, and the professionals and, and I, and I read it sometimes and I laugh because I'm like, that's, that's not her. And, you know, so it's interesting, yeah. um, Heather, because, yeah. you know, you, you talk a lot about language and how it, how it could affect you and and affect the way you, you, you see your child. And I definitely resonated with that. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think it it, language, I mean, I'm a voice, I've been a writer for as long as I can remember. And, and I, words, I've always thought about words. And so when I would, we would enter doctor's offices, it was some, one thing I write about in the book is the way that, you know, moments where one doctor interacts with us and we feel hopeful and alive and grateful and even a little celebratory. Um, and then, I, and then I remembered the words that that doctor had used and thought about like how 
how positively impactful they were. And then other times we would be wrecked by, you know, a doctor's appointment and it was the language that they had chosen to use, um, which were, and it, which yeah. reflected their thinking. So some people think, oh, it's just about choosing the right word. It's not, it's actually the language reflects the way that they're, right. they're perceiving yeah. um, the situation. Because it's natural. It's, they're not yeah. calculating their words. They're just speaking naturally. Yeah. And that shows you yeah. what's really going on, how they really feel about the situation. So Heather, we usually ask these questions to our guests. So what did your child with special needs teach you about your own life? Well, if you could say one thing. Yeah, I, I think I didn't realize how much I had bought into um, the the striving for achievement and like the measurement of a life based on achievement. Like how, what's your, I talk about this in the book too. Like what's your high school ranking? I, I still know yeah. they ranked us, you know, I still know what the number is. And, um, and this idea of like, you should be on target or you should even be a little farther along, like more, you know, more advanced than maybe the average that as like an overachiever, that was really ingrained in me, um, as like a mark for a successful life. And for sure, uh, you know, I had to, I had to toss out that values system and that like sort of yardstick for measuring a a life. Um, and that was really freeing. Um, and I think ultimately truer. And so I no longer really relate or resonate to the parent who's like, well, she's like, you know, like who I, it's not that I don't celebrate other kids' accomplishments, but I don't relate to the parent whose sole job seems to be like trying to get their kid. Yeah. Very hard to relate to that. Right. (laughs) You know, yeah, Yeah, it's so hard and it's such a cultural virtue. Like it's almost, uh, uh, it's assumed that we would all want our kids to be the very best. (laughs) Yeah. The fastest, the prettiest, you know, the, you know, the best that's at X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. Well, you mentioned in your book, you had a yeah. relative who kept talking about his 99th percentile daughter or something. Child. Oh, that was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of frustrating to get through that section. <laughs> well, he seemed genuinely puzzled, you know, that he was like, wow, she's just, she's the top of everything. We can't oh. find anything hard enough for oh. her. And Fiona, you know, she's 99th percentile of height and of, and of math. And Fiona was um, one year old at that point and not really not sitting up like, and may never have, she, you know, we didn't know if she would walk or not. And so for me, like to live a sane life and to enjoy the life I had and be a good mother to her, I felt like, uh, I just needed to wave to those people from another shore, you know, like, Oh, you can live over there, but I'm choosing not like, I can't live over there. I, I choose other, other ways of, um, valuing life, I guess. What would you say to someone who just received a similar diagnosis? Sometimes we relate to each other by the diagnoses that our children receive. Yeah, well, Wolf Hirschhorn. Um, I, you know, actually, any child who has like a rare, you know, genetic deletion to the parents, at least, uh, I say congratulations. I don't mean like hooray, you now have to go yeah. through like a bunch of pediatric specialists. I mean like. congratulations for your baby congratulations you know it's what anybody gets you know and it it should be no different for 
parents who have kids with some kind of a genetic anomaly. They should not be robbed of the cultural celebration around them. So first I say, congratulations, like heartily, you know, Uh, and, and then I don't know. um, You know, I, I might say, I mean, I kind of want to send them my Ted talk. I feel like the Ted talk is like the the delivered, like I made it for them, you know? Um, But I, I also say like, it's okay if you're grieving the diagnosis and it's okay if you're also celebrating your child's life. Like you can do two things at once. Yes. You can grieve the diagnosis and you can celebrate their beautiful, beautiful self. Well, Heather, um, we're, we're going to have you back for part two. And, you know, we thank you so much for sharing your story with all of us. And we would love to hear from our our listeners with with any suggestions for additional podcasts or or comments about how our discussions are impacting your life, feel free to email us at Mama Maria's podcast at ASCfamily.org. We're so glad you're with us and that you want to be part of our lives because we want to be part of yours. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.